Okay, great. Hallelujah. Now I have to fast tomorrow. Um, it's, okay. it's a Christian thing to do, right? Um, but thanks, Connor. I appreciate it, buddy. Um, guys, such a privilege to be with you tonight um, and just share a little bit. Um, let me maybe say a little bit more. Um, my name is Gabriel. Can you quickly stand up? This is my beautiful wife, Michelle. She's amazing. We are so privileged to be here in Johannesburg. Um, I'm a true potchi, which means like I'm born and bred in potch, which makes me very Afrikaans, but I lived in America for four years. That's why my accent sounds a little bit funny. So just so you guys know, but I'm really happy to be here and talk a little bit about leadership. Um, me and Michelle lived in Kona um, at the Wyom Kona base, which as far as I know is the biggest missions base in the world. It's about a thousand missionaries that live there. The reason why it's in Kona is because it's central to Asia and America and South America and the Pacific. Um, if you would have it anywhere else, it would be really hard to reach some of those places. And you will not believe it. South Africa is not the center of the universe. Um, <laughs> it's hard to believe, but <laughs> I struggle as well, right? It's so hard. Um, but so we were there for a while, and we got the privilege for two years there to lead um, a leadership track, which is just their leadership development school for all the staff there, and just got to work with some amazing leaders and learn some good lessons and um, made some big mistakes and everything in between. But um, I want to say this as I'm going to start. I'm going to talk a little bit about leadership. And when we led um, the leadership school there, I told them, if I train you to be a leader in missions, you cannot be a leader in life. I failed you. Okay? And I want to say this. is anything that anybody would ever teach you in church, hear my heart, that does not apply to all of life. It is wrong. That's how we create a sacred-secular split that causes a duality in our thinking, that makes certain things more important than other things there, right? That makes us almost live in this split world. And I, I want to encourage us, even as you are leaders here and some of you are communicators, try your best to whenever you train your people to make sure the theology you're teaching them, the, the things you're teaching them about the knowledge of God is actually applicable to all of life. Because we, we want to, and it's sometimes necessary to understand, but hear me, we need self-control not to build an insulated world that does not affect the rest of the world. And that's why I love this, that this is multi-church, multi-organization, cross-denomination, whatever, right? Because what this does is it kind of shakes us out of our little, like, holy bubbles to hear maybe how other people think about certain things. And it's very healthy and it's really uncomfortable. But I, I would encourage you, we just spoke to Modest Natalie, me and Michelle, just spoke to them and we go like every night, um, or we try to do it most nights, we try to kind of like break our day. My wife is a corporate lawyer um, and I'm a full-time missionary. And we try to take a bath together and then we talk about each other's day. How did you do? What did you do? Oh, you had that contract thing again. Explain to me what that means. What does it mean? the merger of this company, okay, why does those things with BEE points, why does that matter, explain it to me, and then I go to her and say, oh, somebody misunderstood this word, and then they thought it was that definition, and, right, and so we're explaining our worlds to each other, and you have no idea how many solutions to my problems I found talking to a corporate lawyer, <laughs> and you have no idea how many solutions to her problems she has found talking to a missionary. But what happens is, 
kind of like she asks questions that ministers won't ask me. Right? Because like lawyers don't see gray. Right? They create gray. Okay, right? They see black and white 100% and they go like, well, I can find gray there for you. I know it's black and white, but let's go there. And the good thing about it is there's no, usually, usually lawyers don't, aren't really sentimental. Which really helps me. Because I will be so sentimental about something, she'll go like, that's not smart. Like, you being sentimental about that is going to cost you. And so the reason I'm kind of jokingly talking about this is it's important for you as a leader to learn how other leaders lead. Okay? To just hear them out. Now, I'm going to contradict myself soon, so don't worry about it. But I think it's important because the problem is there's this phrase in leadership that's called we silo, which means like you build a little silo, right? And, and everything in that silo makes sense in your world. Okay? And, and it's kind of like everything, right, that is inbred becomes misformed. That's why it's good when we cross-pollinate to hear different things. Okay? So I, I kind of want to just put that there and say I really like this. And then I'm going to pray for myself and we're going to start. So, Lord, we love you. Thank you, Jesus. We get to do this together. This is such a fun thing. And, Lord, I just want to thank you that whenever we turn our hearts to you, you come. You love being with your people more than we ever love being with you. You love being with us. And Holy Spirit, I ask um, tonight that you would speak to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. I pray, Lord, for 30, 60, and 100-fold fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, so um, I'm going to talk here. I, I prayed, and I actually wanted my, my prayer the week coming here, knowing I'm doing a leadership kind of school thing. My thought was to just go like, I'm just going to talk about discipleship, right? And as I've been praying through it, I kind of felt God redirected me. And said, And I said to my wife, that's usually how I do my sermons, I ask the people who travel with me, hey, pray and ask God, what do you feel he's saying? And Michelle's like, man, I feel like there's five points. And I was like, okay, great. I felt there's multi-points as well. So I want to talk quickly about five things. Or not quickly. I want to talk about five things in leadership. All right, I want to talk about authority. I want to talk about discipleship. Talk about holiness. Right? I want to talk about um, building according to the grace given. And then I want to talk about the supernatural. And here's what I want to say is, everything I'm talking about now is applicable both if you're called to the work of vocational ministry or your ministry is in the marketplace, right? And, and I want to say it this way because a lot of times whenever people from the marketplace will hear somebody like me speak, they go like, oh, but he's just talking to missionaries. I'm, I'm not, right? I actually really try as much as I can to speak to people outside of my sphere of influence to hear and ask. I was on a phone call for close to, yeah, I was on a phone call for a while with a pretty big business executive the other night. I just called him. My dad gave me his number. I said, hey, my name is Gabriel. I, have this, I, I help lead this missions organization. Um, and I want to ask you, you're 69, I'm 30. Tell me what you've learned about the partnership between business and ministry. And he just talked for like 35 minutes. Didn't stop once. And I made so many notes. So I think it's important. I want to say this to you that you need to learn how to learn from others. Okay, so first point, and this is not one of the five, the overarching theme 
If anything to do with leadership is the following, the knowledge of God. Now, I'm not saying intimacy, okay, because that is way too mystical. And um, mystical religion might be fun in your secret place, but it very rarely um, carries over into real life, right? The knowledge of God is tangible truth that translates into all of life, right? Now, if you as a leader do not understand that the knowledge of God is the bedrock and the foundation of everything you build upon, you will build something that does not look like God. Right? So in, in, in our understanding, and I spoke to Connor and just about this last night, we had a talk, I said to him, here's what we do, usually how we build, we say this, um, we just call it the belief tree and the soil, and I'm not going to, I'm going to quickly, so don't, don't try to figure it out. Um, the soil is your Christian biblical worldview. Now it's important as a leader that you know that you have a Christian worldview. Here's the problem. Most of us have not grown up in a Christian worldview. We've grown up in a secular, pseudo-Christian worldview, which for most of us, this is what it means. We all are Christian. God serves me. Now, none of us would say that. Okay? But if you would say, look at what you get angry about, it's usually when God doesn't serve you. Okay? And, and this, I'm not, I'm not, Okay? But I just mean it's truthful. Right? And so the most important thing first is you need to understand that you need a biblical Christian worldview. You need to be able to see all of life through the lens of God's Word and not your experience or whoever you listen to on podcast teaching. Okay? I love podcasts. I love listening to teachers. One of my strengths and strength finders is to be a learner. I'm actually a big nerd. Right? I love reading. I love study. But I want to say this is that this is foundational to everything. First, before I can talk about anything else, if you do not value this thing and the truth that it teaches above all else, what would happen is you would create a God that looks like you or the loudest voice in the culture around you. That's what will happen. Okay? And the thing is, you will never master this book. This book masters you. Okay? You do not get to know this book in three years or ten years. Take you 20 years to know it well. Okay, and then the rest of your life to know how to apply it well. Okay, and then when you kind of know all that, it's time to graduate. It's kind of just how God made us. Right, but I want to encourage you to be a lifelong student of this book. So, okay, number one, the soil is biblical worldview. In your biblical worldview is the roots of this belief tree is the nature and character of God. It is what God is like throughout this book. Not your experience. How has He revealed Himself? Okay? Then the, the trunk is the values. Okay? Because of what I see in who God is, what do I value? Then out of the trunk grows the branches and they are principles. Because of what I see in God, and because of what I value then, what are the principles that I pull from what I value? And then the last thing is, what are the fruits or the actions that prove that? Now, why do I say this? I say this because of the following. If you 
Do not understand that you need to build everything you're building on what God is like. You will build things that look like the world in yourself and you won't even know it. So in our organization, we always tell our young leaders, always ask me why. Why do we do this, Gabe? Gabriel, why do we have a prayer room? Can't I just pray on my own? Then some answers would be, no, no, no. The Bible says do not neglect the fellowship of believers. Well, that doesn't say why we have a prayer room. Why do we have a prayer room? Right? The right answer is this. is Jesus prayed, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. And every single account of heaven in the word, there's an unceasing worship. So if I want to answer that prayer, I want to create a space within my community as much as we can to create a place of unceasing worship. That's not my idea. That's God's idea. Right? So now it is not a man's vision. It becomes found in who God is. And it actually helps people to have good foundation. Now, how do I take that to the rest of life? Um, God is just. Right? Because God is just, I do not lie. And because I do not lie, I tell my wife to always ask me pointed questions. Right? The fruit of my wife asking me pointed questions is that I can never hide. Why do I ask her to ask me certain questions? Right? Because I believe God is just. And in His justice, nothing lets go. And I might, because of His mercy, think I didn't get in trouble for stepping over a little line. Which would be the biggest mistake you can ever make. To think that mercy is a thumbs up for your bad conduct. So now, because I see God is merciful and He's just, I tell my wife, hey honey, like I know God is merciful and just. I want you to ask me these questions. What type of questions? Gabe, what happens to your heart when people give you too many compliments? Hey, honey, when's the last time that you fasted? What do you feel is the biggest thing that could hindrance your calling? And I can't give her fluff now, right? I, because I believe what God is like. I go like, I want to build my life to reflect what He is like. Right? So what does that mean when you're in business? It means that you don't steal. It means you don't take bribes. Right? Why do you pay tax? Because Jesus paid it. He got it out of a fish. He still paid it. Right? He owns everything and he still paid it. Right? So whenever people go like, oh, I don't want to pay tax. I go like, well, then you don't want to be like Jesus. Right? And I love you. And I know it sucks. And I know there's potholes. Doesn't negate what God is like. And if I'm an image bearer, I better be like Him or I misrepresent Him. And so the first point of leadership is that from this book, you need to grow in the knowledge of God, not in the knowledge of your favorite teacher. Okay? This is, guys, I cannot hammer this more. Proverbs 2, seek it like silver and gold. Seek it. Seek it more than anything. Right? Here, David and his wife, wasn't, when, he, when he wrote to his son, when he was writing Proverbs, he wasn't writing it to a priest. 
He was writing it to a king of a nation. He wasn't telling him, study political science and understand how to manipulate people to get your will. He didn't say that. He said, study the knowledge of God and from that everything else happens. Why? Because if you rightly know what God is like, everything else is simple. My wife told a story this morning of when she first articled as a lawyer, where she, the first two or three days, just at her work, they would cuss at her everything to lie on cases. And she just went like, I will not lie. I will not lie. I will not lie. Right? Yelling. She would call me crying, going, this is horrible. We pray. Can she leave? Get another job? Nope. Okay, God, we're staying. Right? About six months in, they would come and they would have like packets of the cases and they would go like, oh, Michelle, these are yours. These are all the ones you don't have to lie. And then they'll go on with all the other ones. Right? They didn't make a big deal. They didn't go like, oh, your morality and your moral compass convicted us. No, they didn't because they're sinners, sinners, sinners. But here's the thing. Her understanding of what God is like actually had an impact on the material world. And that's why I start with the knowledge of God. Because God has real thoughts and real ideas about the real world. And if, we be, if our belief does not translate into the real world, we get apartheid. Because we all go to, su- to church on Sunday, even small groups, right? We might be happy clappies and still condole apartheid. Because our belief is not found in God, it's found in church. Now, I love church. Hear me. I'm not criticizing church. I'm criticizing lazy thinking of Christians. Okay, I love you. <laughs> right? But if you read history, I don't want to repeat it. Okay? And there's certain things that people ask me to agree on it. I can't. I'm like, sorry. Like, I can't find it in him. If you can find it in him, I'll do it. If you can't, sorry. Like, you can come up with a lot okay? Right, guys? And here's what I want to promise you. The pressure is going to up. Okay? The pressure to stay silent, to not speak, is going to keep on going. Do you know why? Also because of our history. You don't talk about politics. You don't talk about church at work. Okay? That's, if we don't say something about politics, the world will. And don't do, they do it. Okay? So I'm, I'm not giving a political speech. What am I saying is if your belief does not impact your politics, you have wrong belief. Let me ask this. this is, let me give a conundrum that we have. What happens if every party that's standing believes in things that we inherently believe is wrong? Can you vote for something that condoles murder. Now, we all say no. I see a lot of shaking heads. No, we can't. Right? But then we go like, if we vote for that little party there, nothing will happen. So now you have this question in your heart. Does I, do I condole murder? Or do I get potholes fixed? <sighs> now that's a hard thing. Because now... If I don't vote for that specific party, I know this, the, the right party that does not believe in these things will not win. But if we have 30 million Christians in South Africa, like the statistics says, 
But we, have, we don't. Okay, we have people that have bought into the culture, but their belief is not built on the knowledge of God. Because if it's built on the knowledge of God, we would live differently. Now, but living like this gives you in trouble all the time. And it's not because you look for trouble. I wrote a paper for my master's yesterday, and I said, it, I quoted this thing about um, to look for a fight. Right? And I, and, I, and, I, and I wrote in that, and I said, as a Christian, we always look for a fight because we, dare, because we have a problem with bowing to anything that's not Jesus. So we're not actually looking to fight. I just don't bow before you. I, I, I don't. I hate fighting. I'm not violent. But because you ask me to bow before your God, I can't. Which means I'm going to fight. And here's the thing. I'm not going to fight. I'm going to walk into the fire. You're going to burn your friends up. And I'm going to come out without smoke. Or I'm going to be with the king. In our, inherently, our religion is offensive. Because it does not give in to anything else. But if we don't, we're not Christian. We're secularist in Christian culture. So, I love us, and that's why I'm starting with the knowledge of God. Because this has nothing to do with being a minister. It's everything to do with being yourself. I always tell people, since I became Christian, might be the rugby days, but I, I just don't bow easy. Except when he comes, I just fall down. But like, anything else, I just struggle. I'm sorry, there's a holy arrogance that I just cannot agree. And I've got a lot of troubles. Family, bros, sure, sure. <laughs> like, people will say, me, me and my father-in-law, the biggest fight we've ever had is because I made a statement about a specific political party that condoles abortion and homosexuality. And I said, ah, oh, I just can't agree with it. Biggest fight we've ever had. Like, I mean, like, l- raging disagreement. He was raging. I was just like, hey, Dad, I love you. Like, I'm, I, I just want to say, I studied political science. Like, I am not saying this because I don't like them. I love them, but they're just wrong. And I cannot agree with that. Now, you can see how this will get you in trouble. Okay, but I said this morning, if we dare to look away, we agree. See, that is the greatest, and again, I'm not trying to be political, but God is leading me there, so I'm just going to do it. That is the greatest, hear my heart, guys. And I'm Afrikaans, and I was the first generation who grew up out of this, right? So to an extent, I've been paying for something I've never done wrong. My grandfather was the reason the first ever non-whites went to university. Like, I grew up differently. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Every single white South African that said nothing when they knew it was wrong, is guilty. That's, and that's not a mean statement. We don't have a fence about this. I don't hope we do. This is just a reality. Now, we need to look at that and go like, where else in society right now is Satan asking us to shut up? Where else is it asking us, hey, just shh, 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 peacemaker, peacekeeper, just keep the peace. Hey, this is so important. That's for politics. That's not for Christians. I go like, I beg to differ. Just let's just pray for the government. And I'm like, I I can't agree with that. 
Okay, so the knowledge of God, if we know it, we become dangerous. If we don't, we'll be nominal. You can pray in tongues and know nothing about God and actually help Satan in his mission. Like you can see people get slain and healed and help Satan in his mission if you do not know what God is like. Why? It's because you are not thy you don't have those Afrikaans where it says, right? Because you get that courage the moment you know it's not God. Right? There's something in you as a Christian that's just like, I won't. Sorry. I, I just can't do that. But if most of your revelation is found on a Sunday, that doesn't get birthed that way. Like you get discipled on average six hours a day on your screen. Do you think a 40-minute sermon will change you? You'll be formed at what you look at the most. So we need to look at this book. I know I'm going on a big tangent now, but go, we need to learn this book. Today, and I'll use this last example, I'm done. I asked Natalie, my one friend there, I said, hey, so Natalie, what do you actually do? No, Modest, a teacher, so he's helping discipling the nation, right? What do you actually do? She said, oh, actuaries, I actually create models projecting how the banks do stuff with um, loans and how they should do all that. I was like, and so the reason I usually ask my friends what they do is because I look for the nature of God and what they're doing. I go like, can I explain, how can I explain to Natalie where what God is like is found in what she does? Because if I do that, I've imparted a little bit of a glimpse that she's not just working for a paycheck, she's actually being like her dad. So I asked her, what do you get paid to do? And when it boils down to this, she gets paid to do math. Okay, that's, that's what she gets paid to do, right? Take all the complexity, banks, all of that away. She gets paid to do math. Now, where in the world, why does mathematics have anything to do with God? Okay, so I'm going to give you a quick lesson, then we're going to move to the next point. Um, this is a guitar, Right? Right? And it's made a certain way. Okay? And if you make certain sounds, it makes certain sounds. If you touch it a certain way, it makes sounds. It's kind of strange. It's a piece of wood with metal strings, and if you touch it a certain way, it sings. It's weird. Okay? <laughs> now, just keep that in the back of your mind. Keep mathematics with big mod models for banks in the back of your mind. And then this. Church fathers used to have the saying, God wrote two books. The one book is nature. The other book is the Bible. Okay? Or general revelation and specific revelation. The one is the apologetic that God exists, and the other one shows you what he's like. You do not come to the Bible to prove that God exists. You go to nature for that. The Bible assumes that you believe the author is God. Okay, so if you read this book and you don't assume that, you're not going to get anything. <laughs> you're just going to get stupid arguments. Okay, but when nature has convinced you, you go like, so what is he like? You go like, well, this Bible reader. You're like, oh, what? He breathes stars. He keeps the oceans in the palm of his hand. Like, he's amazing. Okay, now what does that have to do with banks and music? Well, Worship 
it's not just what he did, right? It's like 40,000 steps back. Okay, worship reveals what God is like. It gives him the glory that he is due, right? So we worship God out of the two books. Okay? So I want to do this. I want to take this guitar. I know these things are like the Holy Grail, so I'll be careful. I have a lot of friends that are musos. Okay? So this was made a certain way. And this wood here is a certain thickness. And these uh, strings are a certain thickness. Right? It's because music comes from mathematics, which presupposes that we serve a logical God. So somebody took the mathematic equations of what happens when you bend certain wood in a certain direction so they can be the vibrations of the sound from these strings as different thicknesses goes in there and then sound comes out of that. And because God made the world to be logical, something in us enjoys a sound that is mathematically correct. And so then somebody goes and they play something right, that sounds mathematically correct, right, and then on top of that mathematically correct sound, they add good theology, and the mathematically good sound added to good theology is what we call worship. Why? It's because we're worshiping Him from general revelation, adding on it specific revelation, and those two together makes worship. (laughs) So the worship is not just What comes out of his mouth, the worship was the very fact that this piece of wood makes a good sound. It's proof that God exists and is logical and is reasonable. That's why, that's why, whenever, I'm going to ask you to put that back. I'm not going to do that. Thank you. See, you need to know when to ask for help, right? So that's why. Wanting excellence in worship is actually only wanting to represent God well. That's why when somebody misses a note, you go like this. Right? It's like, oh, you just twitch. Right? You might be the most tone-deaf person in the universe. If somebody misses a note, you hear it. Why? Because it's against God's created design. <laughs> no, but it's real. Right? Why is it ugly? Have you ever thought about that? Why is a missed note ugly? Have any, no, honestly, who's ever thought about that? That's why Martin Luther would not ordain anybody a priest, right, that was not a worship leader. Because he said, if you understand worship, you understand God's order, and I can make you a leader. You could not be a teacher in his, you could, could not be a principal in his schools that reformed Europe if you were not a worship teacher first. It had nothing to do with you wanting to sing in tongues. It had something to do with he understood the mixture between general revelation and the order of God and the specific revelation of the word coming together. It makes a certain type of person. That's why it's kind of interesting when they say muses are flaky because actually they work with maths the whole time. So then my question is, Natalie makes 
algorithms through maths for the bank. And whenever they are true, running through APSA's system, they're actually singing a worship song. Whenever that mathematic equation works out and it actually does what it's intended to do, it reveals that God is a logical, orderly God. So actually, Natalie creates mathematical worship that impacts our economics. That's why we need as leaders to base our lives in the knowledge of God. To know what He is like. Do you know why? So we can empower other people. Because now, Natalie is not just actuaris. Now she's a composer. Okay. So. I'll be quick. <laughs> That went a little bit longer than I thought it would. <clears throat> but okay. First point, authority. Okay, let's quickly talk on authority. I'm not going to talk about authority, who's the man, who's the... I'm not going to do that, okay? Here's what I want to talk about. I want to say this. Who has all authority? Okay? God has all authority. Why? Ex nihilo. Out of nothing, he made everything. It's a Latin word. There is nothing, and from him everything came. So the creator has the privilege to name its creation and give it its authority. Right? So God has all authority because he made all things. Simple. Okay? Now why is that important in leadership? It's important in leadership because if you as a Christian leader think that your boss has all authority, you're in trouble. When can I oppose the government? When they oppose God. I'm, can, can I be a little bit mulak? Okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop a nuke and I'm going to move on. Okay? <laughs> if the government, right, unjustly takes my land, unjustly, they can justly do it, that land is not justly yours. They can take it back for the sake of the innocent. That's God's design for the government. If the government takes my land unjustly. Is it right or wrong? Why is it wrong? No. It's? Okay. Why is stealing wrong? Ten Commandments, you should not steal. The moment when God said you're not allowed to steal, He also called your private property holy. Everything that's yours is holy to you. It's not holy to anybody else. It's holy to you. Which also means that God will hold you accountable to what's holy to you. So it's not like you can't get away with it. But I, I'm saying this importantly. Again, I'm not trying to be political. But I'm saying these things because people are like saying certain stuff in our nation around certain things. And we go like, oh, okay, I kind of feel bad. Great, let's do, go for this. And I'm going like, it's not about feeling bad or not. Right? If somebody comes to you and goes like, hey, this is unjust. This land 
should not be yours, and it is true, then you're wrong. And the re- recompense has to be made. Now, how that happens is four trillion different ways it happens. But if that is not true, you have the right in the word to defend your land with your life. And it's not materialism, it's holy. It's nothing to do with materialism. The only two things that will always create wealth is land and human life. So the nations with the most land and the nations with the most people will be the richest in the future. India is in trouble because they don't have enough land. But they are quickly moving to becoming the country with the most billionaires in the world. Because here's the thing, a human life has unending potential. And if there's 1.3 billion of them, and they believe they can do something, it gets dangerous in a good way. Okay, so now, just a little rabbit hole, and I'm going to go back to authority. In the business sector, right, the church's responsibility with poverty is aid. The business sector's responsibility is development. Aid is you help people, right, because if you don't help them, they'll die. Development's responsibility is to empower people to do what they can do with where they are. It's a big difference. Okay, so the, the, the first time I heard somebody speak about this, I used the example of Haiti. If Christians and churches all over the world did not intervene in Haiti, right, hundreds of thousands of people would have died of hunger. So it was important, right? But now when everybody else comes in after that has passed and keep giving their money, it's actually destroying them. So development and empowering people by the authority that God gave you actually helps them to walk in the same authority to go on. Okay, now I know I'm hitting a, di- a lot of different points. Let me go to this last place with authority, and I'm going to move to discipleship. Authority, number one, is from God. Okay? He has all authority. The individual on this earth has the highest authority of everything. You have so much authority, God will not take it away. Do you know what hell is? Hell is the extreme of mercy. Hell is your whole life, you chose to use your authority to not choose God. And he kept on giving you mercy to be a a sovereign state within yourself. He kept on choosing mercy, choose mercy, choose mercy. Like you kept on choosing against him. And at the end of your life, he gave you to what you chose. And if you don't choose him, you choose hell. God so respects your authority that he will not cross it. And so, if you think about identity quickly, right? We're called sons. You're called friend. We're called a bride, right? Now, I want to know of those three things, which one of them could you do to yourself? We could not propose to God. We could not make ourselves a part of his family. And the lesser could never call the greater their friend. So every single one of those identities is a response to his invitation. There's one part of our identity that we have something to do, and it's servant. It's where we lay down our authority under his. So now the question is, who did you give authority to that God did not allow you to give it to? Now, what's marriage? Marriage. 
It's two sovereign individuals laying down their authority to each other. To make a new sovereign called a family. And that new sovereign called a family is a new unit from which new authority gets created called children. And so when family is not done well, authority is misunderstood. When authority is misunderstood, we give authority to the evil one that has no authority, but a lot of power. What's power? The ability to do something. Authority is the right to do it. So Satan has the ability to do a lot of damage, but no authority to do it. And so when we do not understand God has all authority, the individual has all authority under God, right? And within marriage, we submit authority to each other under God, and we raise children that understand that they submit to my authority like I submit to God's authority, and they see how that interaction works between a wife and a husband. What happens is the enemy can come when the husband is out of that, and there's just a mom as an example, which is 7 out of 10 of every children in South Africa. Now it starts twisting authority. And that's why we see the brokenness that we see. Because now people give up agreement that is giving up authority to the enemy. That's why our nation looks like it looks. And that's why I'm starting with authority. The biggest thing that you need to understand outside of the knowledge of God is, what does it mean that as the individual, you have all authority? Now, why is that hard as a leader? Somebody tell me. Here's why it's hard. It's because I can't take away his authority. Or I'm not like God. <laughs> you didn't hear what I just said. <laughs> so if I preach in a way where you have no choice, I'm not like God. It's called manipulation. It's witchcraft. If the prophetic moves in a meeting in a way that takes away the individual's authority or say, it's not like God. So the reason I'm starting with authority is because you need to understand God has authority. You have all authority. But if you have all authority, He has all authority. Which means if I want Him to do something and who I am in myself does not convince Him that He can trust me, I can't make Him do it or I'm misrepresenting God. That's why we have lots of contracts. It's the way to get you to do what I need you to do. Is it unbiblical? No, it's biblical. God has a lot of contracts. But it's a reminder of how much authority you are laying down and how much I'm paying you for your authority. That's why you need to read your contracts. Because if your contract says you cannot talk about religion, can you sign it? Because then you signed away authority that's only God's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, there's probably some grace somewhere, but I doubt it. <clears throat> I said this morning, it gets grayer the farther you are away from the light. One of my Engia friend's dad, that's the Engia pastor of Duomini, 
said that when they had the first conversation about gender. He stood up in the Senate. And he said to them, you see this is gray. And I believe God is saying that it only is gray when we move away from the light. Now, those were very prophetic words. Those were t- that was 10 years ago. Look where they are now. Don't give away authority. Now, the conversation about authority is like a five-hour conversation. I'm going to move on now <clears throat> to discipleship. Luke 9, 23. Don't turn there. I'm just going to quickly blast through it. You can write just Luke 9, 23. Jesus is speaking about discipleship. And he said to them, and he said to all, say all, okay, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily. Whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and, and loses himself or forfeits himself? That's a crazy verse. So Jesus says to all, all means all. If, if, now that word right there, if, is the scariest word in that whole scripture. Because if means you have the choice not to do it. If means you have the option to not do it. goes on and says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So, self-denial is not asceticism. It doesn't mean like I'm like beating myself with a whip. That's not self-denial. Okay, that's, that's a misunderstanding of self-denial. Okay, Jesus is saying to all, if anyone would come after me, they need to deny themselves. Now, self is heading there. So, walk that way. Michelle is Jesus. Just stop quickly. Go, go a little bit back. Okay. I'm me. Okay. Now, she's like, if, right, you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself. And you need to follow me. Okay. The concept of discipleship is follower. I just, I explained it that way. It's super simple, but it's very profound. Jesus is saying, if anyone, which means everybody is included. If anyone wants to follow me, they need to deny themselves and come after me. The denial part is not, oh, I, poor little me, I'm an evil person. It's like, no, God, where are you heading? You're heading there? Okay, I'm going there. Now, there is a little bit of a crux to it, okay? A little bit, but we'll go there, okay? But I just want to say that first, because if you don't see the picture of it just means change your direction, you're going to make it weird stuff. Okay? It's not weird stuff. It's just change your direction. Go after him. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
The cross had two purposes. Okay? First purpose was to murder you. Okay? It's really good at that. The second person was to destroy your purpose was to destroy your reputation. The cross was such an abomination that you could not be a Roman citizen and get crucified. And if you were a Jew and you hang on a tree, you were cursed. So the job was not just to murder your body, it was to destroy your reputation. So when Jesus <laughs> tells you to follow him, daily picking up that murderous torture tool, he's saying on a daily basis, what the flesh desires needs to die, and you need to get over your reputation dying. If you care about you, you don't care about him. Okay. Now you can see how you cannot be a leader if you don't understand discipleship. Because you will lead people to you. And most of us can't even make our books count at the end of the month. How can we lead people? That's why we need to follow him and go like, hey, I think I'm heading that way because that's why I'm discerning his going. You want to come with me? Last part of discipleship is this. <clears throat> For whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Now, here's the interesting thing. When sin entered the world, death entered. So then, in the cycles of sin throughout Genesis, there's seven cycles of sin. And these cycles of sin, man keeps getting younger. It's because the penalty of sin is, and sin matured. So, it didn't start with incest and rape. It started with eating a fruit. Then it went to murder. Then it went to a lot of people murdering other people. Then it went to a lot of sexual immorality. Then it went to massacres. And then sin matured. Right? Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because here Jesus is saying, if you try to keep your life heading that direction, the natural outflow of the maturity of sin in your life, you would lose your life. That's a matter of fact, theological fact. The natural outflow of your will is death. Done. It's not hard. It's not a big deal. It's not like a big point. But the fact is, if you follow your way, you're going to die. Okay, so who here has walked a pretty radical Christian life and had like one little sneaky sin. Whoever had that? Right? I had that. Nobody else? Okay, luckily there's a few honest people here. Okay? And so who here can tell me that little sneaky sin didn't stay with a little sneaky sin? It matured and brought death everywhere it was not in submission to Jesus. So when Jesus says if you would keep you, you would lose you. He's just stating a fact. But he's saying, if you would deny you and follow me, you would gain you. Why? Because he is the light of life. And so when I follow life, the natural response is life. 
And so the earth was formless and void, and he spoke and created order and beauty. So the woman caught an act of adultery. He fixes the whole problem, turns around to the crowd, and tells them, I am the light of life. He was referencing Genesis 1, going like, you see that chaos? You see the formless and void woman there? Did you see me step in and create order? So he's saying, when you follow me, Genesis 1 will happen to you. The formless and void broken life will become order and beauty. And so when you follow you, formless, void, death happens. When you follow him, the light of life comes and beauty and order comes. Now, before I knew God, I got kicked out of university for a few reasons. And one of them was that I failed all my subjects too many times. Then I got born again. I have a bachelor's degree and I'm busy with my master's. I, my whole life, believed I was dumb until I got saved. It's kind of funny, right? I really believed I was a dumb rugby player. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> right? And I, I, my dream is to start a university one day. I could never do that. But I followed him, and he creates order and beauty from a formless void mess that was Gabriel. Now, that is what it means to be a disciple. Now, what happens, what happens if we do that to the economy? The formless and voidness, when the light of life and little human authorities that submit to its leadership start shining in that darkness, there comes these little pockets of order and beauty. What happens if church leaders actually submit to Jesus? And His Word. We don't just build kingdoms or missions bases that just build kingdoms. But we actually follow the King and His kingdom. We will see way more order and beauty than all of the discord and disunity we see. That's why discipleship has nothing to do with you having a small group. Although it does a little bit. It says, teach them everything I've commanded you, commanded you and teach them to obey. Then it says, baptize. It says before that, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does that word baptism mean? Immerse. Okay, what else does it mean? So let me explain it. Because it does mean immerse. But it means immerse in a way more complex way than we think it means. It It means immerse in the following way. It means immerse like you put a cucumber in vinegar and becomes a pickle. It means that you are baptizing a nation in the knowledge of God that its very fabric changes. That a once broken nation becomes something else. L- um, not Luzon, uh, Geneva, before Calvin came, was called the armpit of Europe. Today is the headquarters of world excellence. Because Calvin taught them baptized them in the knowledge of God. And a city that was the poorest city in Europe becomes the headquarters of the UN, the World Bank, Rolex, can go down the list. Because they understood that their workers worship. That's discipleship. Third point, holiness. Titus 3. Grace teaches us to say no 
to ungodliness and desires of the flesh in this present life. Holiness is not something you strive for. Everybody is holy, even if you're not saved. Think implicationally. I'm speaking the truth, I promise. Holiness means separated onto. Everybody is holy onto something. Everybody is holy onto something. The question is, what are you holy onto? Are you holy onto Jesus? Or are you holy onto your girlfriend? Now, I'm, I'm actually pretty stoked sometimes that God, guys are holy onto their girlfriends because it gets them saved. That's the only reason they come to church sometimes. Right? And then they legitimately get saved and then they break up with the girl. And then now you have to make sure she stays saved. But that's fine. That's the issue for now there. <clears throat> Holiness is the fruit of being addicted to the maximum pleasure of life, which is God Himself. If you understand holiness, being radically different from the world comes naturally. Holiness is not external action. It's understanding of internal desire. If you want to know how holy you are, tell me what you want the most. Your want determines what you're holy on to. Now, I'm not talking about positional holiness. The moment you're born again, God declares you holy, which is freaking awesome. Hallelujah, otherwise all of us would be in trouble. Okay? I cannot add anything to the work of the cross. Praise God. Otherwise, But here's the thing. We need to understand that our holiness has a marketplace effect. Do you know where the term social holiness comes from? Or social consciousness? It comes from the same person. Social consciousness. Somebody give it a shot. You know, like, that's not just a term that was there forever. Somebody thought it out and then baptized the nation in it. His name was William Wilberforce. And he ended world slavery. And he stood up in England in the 17th century after he got born again and was discipled by the guy that wrote Amazing Grace that was a slave ship owner. And he stood up and he said, us a Christian nation, England, God will not hold, hold us without contempt that we have a lack of a social consciousness for the slavery that happens in our midst. Holiness has a social implication. Let it be on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a charismatic catchphrase from Bethel. It's a prayer of Jesus. And it talks about let the leadership of God be evident on this earth. And so when I'm talking about holiness, again, you'll see I'm not taking it to the usual conversation we're having about holiness. Taking it a few steps further. It is this reality that I have the revelation, right, that God is a certain way, again, the knowledge of God, from this book. Now, I'm seeing in front of my house is a pothole. Instead of writing to Facebook and everybody else, because I know the government is not going to do it, here's what I do. I either stand 
to be the political leader of the ward, or I get a shovel and fix the pothole. That is social holiness. Just fix the pothole. There's a single mom living next to you. You hear a lot of crying. And you realize you hear from the lady that does her nails that two of her kids are sick. You take her dinner for the next week. Social holiness. I'm realizing that I want heaven to come to earth and the father would want to father those kids. So I'll go and go take them food. Because that's the bit I can do. Now imagine we would stop complaining about if dancing is sin or not and actually apply holiness to this way. You go like, holy unto God is also society. Now again, guys, if I was talking to a group of church leaders, I will not necessarily just have this conversation. I would have a lot of conversation about justification, sanctification, glorification, da 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 But most of you, that doesn't matter. You know that. You get taught that on Sundays. What I'm talking about now is the fact that if you're holy unto God, it means there's certain things around you that you want to see become like it is where He is. It might mean that the maid that works in your house, you actually sit down and talk to her. You don't give her a cup and a spoon in a different place. She uses yours. Because the father will not give her a different plate. <clears throat> That's Bakslaw for somebody here. She doesn't use a different bathroom. That's unrighteous. You need to hear me, guys. That's deeply unrighteous. Holiness is even if she calls me boss, they're like, no, my name is Gabriel. That's holiness. So I realize who has all authority. It's not me. And I want to have his kingdom come here and if I'll look for things to make it like. Like I'm, I'm, I'm practically looking. How can I make everything like heaven? The whole time. How do I make it like heaven? Like how, like that's home. This is home. They need to meet. Okay, how do I do it? Number four, building according to grace. First Corinthians your 13 minutes, I'm going to do it. I have it, I have it, I have it. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. This is very important. According to the grace of Paul speaking, given to me, like a skilled master builder, I lay a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care on how he builds. Now the foundation is Christ, which means your salvation, Right? Paul does something interesting in his language. He kind of does it a lot. He goes like, hey, according to the grace given to me, I build. So then, then he says something. So then let each one. It's like, Paul, I thought you're talking about yourself. Now you just sneakily included me into that conversation. Right? So he says, hey, according to my grace, I do carefully what God has given me. So all of you be careful how you build. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ, which means your works. doesn't matter. The foundation is Jesus. You're born again. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, 
wood, hay, and straw, each one's work, say work, will become manifest for the day, say day. That word day, there's a capital D. That's the end of the age when everything will be judged. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anybody has done on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. That is the best piece of Scripture for eternal rewards. Paul is saying grace was given to each person according to God's good judgment. Each one of us has been given a measure. He says, now, take the measure that was given to you. You know you're saved. You're standing on a solid foundation. It's Jesus. Okay? Now build well. Because all of your work will be tested by fire. Now, I'm going to break some charismatic boxes. Okay? But I love tongues, wildness, everything. People that know me will tell you that. But I also have an issue with the charismatic movement. A few of them. But we can go there later. But I want to say this. John the Baptist says Jesus will come and baptize us in the Holy Ghost. And okay, fire is not praying in tongues louder. He baptizes us the first time in the Holy Spirit. And in the second time in judgment. <laughs> that fire there was not the tongues of fire. That fire there is when he comes back and he judges everything. That's the Bible. It's interesting. In one part of the verse it talks about now. In the other part of the ter- verse it talks about the day to come. When it says everything will be judged by fire, it talks about Jesus judging each individual's work. Did you live according to the grace He gave you? And if you did, you are rewarded. Now let me say to you, say praise God. Do you know what's the goal of that whole verse? Is that God wants to show you He wants to reward you. The focus of this whole piece is that He will reward. It's not that, oh, be afraid of the fire. It's not that you can't be afraid of the fire. Your life was built upon the foundation. But now build carefully according to the grace given to you because you will come and you will judge everything not to punish but to reward. If you're born again, the goal of judgment is not punishment, it's reward. It's how did you respond to love? How did you respond to love? You need to hear that. He will judge us at the end of the age to go like Gabe. How did you respond that I saved you from snorting coke and killing yourself? And every cup of water it says that you gave away, he will not forget. Hallelujah. There are some omas that's going to be wealthy in heaven one day. And there are some prosperity preachers that's going to be in by the skin of their teeth. They will be famous on earth and far away from the throne up there. And there will be people that nobody ever knew. They will be exalted for eternity. God is not unjust. Last point. You can understand why that's important. Because here's the thing. Some of you is an assistant that does admin the whole day. 
and you're not really gifted either to lead anything in church. I don't mean it in a mean way. Some people just aren't. And you ask yourself this question, but what am I made for? You're made for Him. When nobody sees you sending that email, and you're not leading a big thing, and you don't have the mic, He's saying, well done. According to the grace I've given you, you've always responded well. I'm proud of you. I love you. According to your grace, you've responded well. You've been that house mom. You've raised five children. Well done. You've responded well. You will get rewarded for eternity. Last point, leadership. It's the following. I know this is a big one. Is if you want to be an effective kingdom leader, you need to believe in the supernatural. If you don't, you will not, you will not be effective. Sorry. You'll only do what you can do in your strength. Show me one biblical Bible, a biblical leader that did not have supernatural intervention. The only unbiblical thing about the supernatural is if you say you believe in it and nothing happens. I usually when I talk about the supernatural at church, I usually tell them the only unbiblical thing of supernatural encounters in church, if you say God shows up and nothing happens. There's no place in the Bible where God comes and everybody's sitting. Right? That doesn't exist in the Word. So if you want to build your life upon the Word, and you tell me God is in our church and nothing ever happens, I want to be nice to you, but like I also have to be true to God. And so in your life as a leader... We need to build in a way, and I'm going to take the supernatural to a few different places. Okay, so firstly, you need to build on the Logos, but also the Rhema. The Logos is the written word. The Rhema is the now word. You need to be able to build your life upon the revelation that God speaks. If, God, if you truly believe that God speaks, nothing is impossible. Nothing. There's no problem that cannot be solved. I'm going to give you two examples now. Third, second thing is, you need to be able to understand that God can move hearts that you can't. God can move hearts that you can never move. That's why we pray. That boss, Michelle prayed in her boss's uh, atheist that would blaspheme the Holy Spirit to bother her. Right? She would pray in his office for six months and then one day he calls her and says, Hey, share with me your testimony. And she literally goes through her files looking for the last name testimony. And she's like, oh, you want to know, like, you want to know how I got saved? And he's like, yes, tell me how you got saved. God, through her prayer, did the impossible, the supernatural, and opened the door for that man to hear the gospel. Second supernatural thing. Third supernatural thing. Again, there's probably a billion, but I'm going to give you three. Is God blesses. What do I mean with that? God has this interesting supernatural way to make things work in His kingdom. I don't know how it works, 
right? But again, Wilberforce, I'm writing a big paper on him for Wednesday, so I'll talk a lot about him. He had this friends called the Clapton sect. They made fun of them. And he ended world slavery. It's like me telling you I'm going to end the oil trade. It's like it was the biggest commodity in the world then. His best friend was the youngest prime minister that ever lived. He was 26. Their other two friends were the three biggest importers in the UK. Their other best friend was the admiral that was over... Um, the, what's the guy's name that was at Trafalgar Square, general of the admiral? Um, Nelson. He was the admiral above Nelson. The young guy that took everything over from then was a general that won at Waterloo, the battle. Like, supernaturally, and all of their kids got married, and it was just like this blessing of intertwined relationship of extremely influential people that God said, in this generation, world slavery will end. Done. You cannot make that happen. I don't care who you are. Sorry. Right? That, that just doesn't happen. Now, we need to trust that God can change our nation. And if you do not believe in a supernatural God, you will not pray for the right relationships to fall in place. For God to help President Soto Ramaphosa. I pray for him a lot. When my grandfather was 48, he stood up in an ANC meeting said, you're right there. You'll become the next president of South Africa. And it was Surah Ramaphosa. And he gave him this long prophetic word about the transformation he would bring. Here's the thing. God ordained that Surah Ramaphosa would be president. We need to believe in the supernatural power of God to change hearts, to transform things so that what needs to happen in this beautiful nation can happen. Now, when I go back to hearing his voice, and I'm going to end with this, um, I studied politics, philosophy, and sociology. Okay, probably the most... Uh, if I had anthropology, it would be the most ungodly study direction you can study, right? <laughs> God was kind. He didn't ask me to take anthropology. I had so many disagreements with my lecturers. It was like a debate. Honestly, like 400 people stand up and go, like, I disagree. You just gave me four articles to read about why homosexuality, transgenderism, everything is right. If this is an intellectual institution... Why did you not give me an article about why it's okay to be heterosexual? You're intellectually dishonest. Do you know what happened? They gave me all my grades for that subject. They tell me you can leave the class. Because they know I'm right. I'm right. Right, that's literally the truth. If you don't give me something else, you're intellectually dishonest. So I'm in this, and, I'm, and I have to write my final paper on um, Karl Marx's view on God. And he said God um, cre uh, is the, religion is the opiate of the masses. He had this whole thing on it. And then he spoke about how God, needed, God created man, right? And it's kind of just his analogy to define what he is like. So God could not know what he is like, so he made man to define what he is like. That's why I cannot believe in, that's why he says, that's why he cannot believe in God. Because if God needs man, he's not worth worshiping. And I was like, wow. And, and, and I don't know why, but I really wrestled. I didn't have an answer for it. And I'm like, man, I don't know how to answer this. And I'm studying, and now, usually in university, what I would do is, I would give, like, the answer they want me to give them. Otherwise, I'll fail. And then I'll give, like, but, 
and then I'll give you then my answer, <laughs> right? And I'm standing in an elders meeting, and I'm praying with the, our elders are praying, and in the prayer meeting, before I go write exam, I get like a download, boom. And God's like, Gabe, I never needed you to define what I'm like. I've always been in community. Marx did not understand the Trinity. That's why, that's why he thought I needed you. And so I wrote that paper, asked him for a new paper, wrote about the theology of the Trinity, why God knew himself within himself, because there's always been unending relationship, and said, but I kindly disagree with Marx because his theology is wrong. I got the best grade in the class, and my teacher called me in and said she's never seen a Christian give an answer that she agrees with. Do you know where that came from? Not my idea. It's because I believe that God speaks. And he can speak to me about politics in an elders meeting. <laughs> right? And some of you might be in small group and God will give you a solution for your job. Guys, God wants to fix this world. And you're the change agent. Right? And if you believe that he speaks and you believe what he's like in this book, you understand his authority and you're a disciple. Okay, and you know that you have grace given to you and he wants to reward you for living well, that you have a cheat code called the supernatural, what can stop us? If you kill me, I'm with him. If you don't, I'll change the world. Right? Live as Christ, it dies gain. And the worst part is if you would murder me, my blood will intercede for your salvation for, till the end of the age. The blood of the martyrs is a seedbed of revival. Why? Hebrews 12. His blood speaks a better word. Abel's blood cried out justice. Jesus' blood cries out mercy. And every martyr that gets killed cries out the same thing as Jesus. Mercy. So what can they do? Nothing. We're in trouble. But if you're silent, persecution is not needed. The goal of persecution is silence. It's not to kill you. They don't want to kill you. They don't care. If you live like Satan, they win. Okay. 